0: I'm Daniel from Journey of a Braid, and this is Braided Conversations. I had a very special conversation with E.J. Call on her latest book, The Magical Language of Others, where she explores her relationship with her mother and how this shapes her life in many ways. It's very special to speak to her because she's truly a poet so all the time she's making references to aspects of her life in which I believe many of us will find ourselves reflected.
1: I'm struggling to understand why I have to live, why somebody doesn't have a choice not to live you know those are questions I ask even with poetry uh, behind me and I think towards the end what I realize is that whether I'm alive um, or not I'm still life.
0: Hello EJ how are you I'm so happy to see you today how have you been?
1: I've been well I've been well I'm excited to talk with you tonight.
0: So am I. I'm really, really excited about this conversation. Um, and I'm very grateful to Miami Book Fair to, to allow us and to facilitate this space for us to have yes. this conversation. Yeah. So first of all, I want to hear about your career. Uh, you have been quite recognized in the poetry world and, um, I want to hear more about your experience so far.
1: Okay. Um just my experience in um, writing poetry or um, sort of more recently
0: as a. Your experience in writing poetry. I'm always very curious on how someone becomes a poet. I think it's a very specific journey internally and emotionally.
1: Right. So it's, I, I don't think I ever intended to become a poet. I had, quite a bit of trouble in school and with learning and education and it really was when i was almost about to graduate from undergraduate school that i didn't complete a mathematics requirement which is a sort of breadth requirement and my school counselor said if i can't take this mathematics class which i really felt I couldn't do, she said, we'll replace it with an introduction to poetry class. Um, I I think in her words, it was that if mathematics is the language of God, then what is a, a, a suitable replacement? And she said, it's the language of man, which is poetry.
0: What a special person to have around. Mm -hmm. It's not often that you see that understanding of someone's mind.
1: Right. So I was... I had planned and prepared to become a dancer. I was a competitive dancer. And I really had no interest in school and my plan was to get out. But when I met that school counselor, I was pushed into an introduction to poetry class and I rebelled and revolted against the class. But within a week, I was back with a folder of 40 poems. It turned out I couldn't stop writing poems. And so um, I think one of the first critiques I got is, is that my my teacher told me, you know, if you you have a wonderful way of beginning poems and filling poems out in the middle, but you have uh, quite a bit of trouble writing the end of a poem, the turn of the poem. And these poems were about my mother and my grandmother. And they said, you have to forgive your mother by the end of the poem, or the poem has to forgive you for not being able to. And that's when I really latched on to that idea and said that this is what what I want to practice most. It's this sense of magnanimity.
0: So then poetry became a way of catharsis towards understanding your personal story.
1: I, I think so. I think it, poetry was important, not just for itself, but I had to go through poetry to find forgiveness and acceptance and practice things like care
0: that i didn't know how to go about doing so tell me more about your most recent book how did it came about
1: my memoir the magical language of others it it started just as a translation project when i reunited with my family 9 years after we had separated I found in a box 49 of my mother's letters that she used to write me when we weren't together and they were in Korean. And I remember by then I had become a translator and a poet and I still didn't know what to do with these letters. But I'm, I met up with a mentor of mine. She's a translator as well. And she said, you know, you found 49 letters and in Buddhist tradition, 49 is the number of days that your soul wanders the earth looking for answers before the afterlife. And that really helped push me to translate these letters one by one before I realized there has to be some sort of context to the letters. And from then on, it became a sort of transformation from keeping the letters that that helped uh, the story, that helped the narrative, that helped understand what was going on in my life as well. So we see my mother's life and my life side by side.
0: Right it together. Mm-hmm. And I noticed that, I mean, I felt really connected to your story. Because I didn't grow up with my mother either. When I was seven years old, my parents got divorced. And I stayed with my dad. And then my mom sort of went her way. And there were no letters, really. <laughs> I didn't even get that. Yeah. So it's, uh, I, I, I really felt connected to, to how you must have felt. And yet I find that in the way you write, you make it so rational. You make it so normal to a certain degree, because your emotions seem to be so processed by the time you're writing this. So um, for those that might have not read your book yet, can you explain to us how the relationship with your mother worked?
1: Right, so when I was 14 I, I was born and raised here and when I was 14 my father got this tremendous job offer in South Korea and then the next year, my my father and mother, they moved to South Korea so he could take the job. And they moved me into another city. It was about 90 miles away in Davis, California, with my brother. They put a little uh, house there where we lived. As My brother was just four years older than me, so we were both teenagers. And we decided that we could stay apart just for a few years Um, but those few years became um, even more it became five then seven and then ultimately nine before I got to reunite with them and during those years I was um, I was drinking quite a bit and I was young but I was practicing, I suppose, quite a bit of self-harm. I attempted my life regularly, and I would experiment with drugs. But above all, I developed a severe eating disorder. And I think all eating disorders are severe. And so it was uh, these years in Davis that we really start off the story to try and understand where I was and the effort um, to try and understand my parents' decisions and our separation.
0: I think that the question that is persistent for me uh, as I read is why wouldn't you just move with your parents at that point? What was so important about the U.S. that kept you here?
1: Right. I think for my mother, she uh, I mean, for her, she felt that it had been so difficult for me to establish or to learn anything at all and survive in this country that to completely uproot me and take me back to Korea, she thought it it would be much more harmful than good, that it, she just couldn't imagine me um, doing any better in Korea and said, I I should stay here where I know the language and I I might have a better shot. I think this was coming from her experience of mothering me when I was younger and I just um, did have sort of learning developmental issues and behavioral issues in school that took a quite a bit of time to get over
0: But at the same time she left you as a child and then when you were together again you were an adult and you had formed yourself on your own with very scarce get-togethers with the rest of your family so it must have been extremely hard I, I mean when I think back to my personal story because obviously that's the only way you can relate to other stories I at least had my father but for you, being totally alone at the moment when, being a, when womanhood is at stake in a way, because I believe those are the years where womanhood is defined. And I, I want to speak further about your culture, because I think that plays such a special role in your narrative. So how are women perceived in Korea? Right.
1: In Korea, even today, there's a huge um, issue with women's voices being heard and the women, uh, women's experiences being validated. I think it comes from just a, a long tradition of suppressing the women through um, sort of their obligations to society and the obligations of the role that was largely forced upon them. And so what what is happening now though is the Me Too movement, it it reached this global um, effect. And so in South Korea, the Me Too movement um, left a big mark and impression and especially in the poetry scene of Korea, there was a outcry with Korean women poets about um, sort of what they had gone through at the hands of um, um, uh, Korean male poets. So it it was, I, I think right now, through demonstration and protests and through publication, we see how important Korean women were and, continue to be when it comes to sort of literary establishments and new practices and a new sort of or developing aesthetic about what it feels like to be a Korean woman living in South Korea which I think comes with this sort of unspeakable pain and grief and um, and so I think that's really important and that's part of what I do when I'm translating Korean women poetry. And it, it's, it's a powerful thing. And I think you see it in my mother and you see it in sort of her letters and the details of her everyday life that she wishes she could have done more. She wishes she could have been more.
0: But she just didn't know any better to a certain degree because she needed to feel this role with your father in a way, right? Because there's always this predominant male figure.
1: Right, I think you see that in the thread with my mother's relationship with her mother. Um, it, for me in the memoir to understand how important it was for my mother to return to South Korea, happened when I learned that she left her family for 17 years and she had left them in a state where they had all been orphaned. And she felt this deep responsibility to go back. And so for her, she needed to go. And for me to understand that decision, I need to understand her relationship with her mother and how her mother left her when she was very young. Uh, Death is as a sort of separation, but also her mother running away. And so it, it was about learning these choices from generation to generation that kept Korean women in my family um, uh, grieving and in quite a bit of pain.
0: For me here, I, I believe there is such a clear breathing between the lives that each women live according to their past. You know, I think it, it's so clear to see how you still continue the, the journey that the one before brought and then the one before. And then in your present life, all you have is this opportunity to like jump to the next level. And it's it's a really tough thing to do. I think going back to my story, like it, that has been the, 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 the most challenging part of my journey. understanding what kind of mother I want to be basing myself on the things that I lived and understanding that they're just the response of all the stories it's a ripple effect of all the stories that came before me and how to break that level or, or or you know like break that pattern in order to clear it for the ones that are coming after you right because that's what the responsibility sort of becomes for us, especially as women. I have sons, but still, I think that it's as women. I want to read some quotes that I really loved on motherhood. Uh, one of this was really, really special. Well, babies should give heartaches and be exhausting so that mommies can grow and learn. Isn't that right? Now, there are 10 days left. I miss you and I love you so much. So how do you? Th- what do you think was your mother's conflict when it came to 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 having you as a child because what was so hard for her like was it only her experience or 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 was it something else
1: i think there's a, a lot of things but i think one part that stands out to me personally is my you know in the story she's my mother but she's also somebody's daughter and making that jump was important to say, who is she as somebody's daughter? And as somebody's daughter, she's, she's a daughter who lost her mother. And so when it, it might sound odd for to hear a mother tell their child, you know, your, your babies have to help you grow. But however, if we see her as a daughter who, who's lost her mom when she says that, it, it makes a little more sense. There's a little more compassion in the way she is and what she wants from me that sometimes might be too much, but what she wants is is a mother. And it, it's like uh, she wants me as possibly the reincarnation of her own mother to recognize her as her child. She wants to be somebody's child again, and she wants to grow and learn from um, Her own mother again who she sees in me so it's a complex relationship
0: i think your wording is so incredible when it comes to this it's so well explained you saved me like five years of therapy right now (laughs) it's truly special and yet there's this other quote where i think that there must be a, a huge internal conflict because then she says women with sons have this space, my mother once told me. While you can fight with your daughter, you must buy your tongue in front of your son. <laughs> Please explain to me. I mean, I understand on the uh, like from the outside, but yeah. on the inside, you had your brother at the same time. So, how could you go to terms with this? To realities, right?
1: So it. it uh, I think the imprint of. My, my parents, my mother's experience is living in a very patriarchal society, but at the same time, it's a patriarchal society that was also supported by women as well. Um, and I think you see that through a sort of grief that's handed down from woman to woman through my mother's, uh, she had a really, really bad relationship with, my father's mother. So who's Kumiko in the book? But it, it was just my grandmother who raised me. Now she had such a bad relationship because for for my my grandmother, she my father was always number one, was always first. And it created a lot of tension because it meant my mother was always last. She like her needs were below the needs of um, my my father's needs, my grandmother's needs, and even uh, the needs of the children when they were when they first immigrated here. And that sort of difficulty is at first hard to understand because you see my grandmother and say, why can you just why can't you just be a little more kinder to this young woman who has been married into your family instead of perpetuating this really painful cycle and, oh. and, and, and encouraging my father to, to keep my mother pressed down in, in certain situations, especially in the past. But we get into, story, into the story of my grandmother and Kumiko and how she lost her father, how she lost her father because of her mother's unwillingness to sort of listen to his advice. Which wasn't meant to be a lesson about patriarchy. It wasn't a lesson to be about men and women. It was a tragedy. It was an atrocity. But from learning what happened to her, you understand her deep um, uh, pain and the decisions she made, and the res- and the hatred and resentment she felt toward my mother, and that comes out in my mother. You know, so I think it's it, it's really interesting there is a a favoritism toward men and toward patriarchy and it's often you know reinforced by men and it i think it hurts men as well but we hear less about how it's reinforced by women of the family as well it it's it's a pain that says i've i've had to endure this and so you you ought to as well
0: absolutely and i think that it's even stronger the impact that women can have inside the family because then they're doing it upon the new generations. It's on us to instill that. So, But as much as you talk a lot about your, your mother, you don't talk that often about your relationship with your father.
1: Right, right. I, I, when I was writing the book, I really wanted to emphasize all the women in the family and their stories because i just wasn't seeing enough of that not enough that i felt um, that there was enough said and i think even going forward there isn't enough said uh, i think having stories about uh, not just korean women but the but korean mothers and grandmothers and of the the generation that you know first came to the states, and even before that, that's that's really important to understand a sort of oral history in place to understand what we might be able to do going forward. So, I I, I encourage a, a constant um, making of stories about women uh, across any cultures. I think it it, it can it should never be. Uh, a one or two stories that rise above the rest and that are that become representative of what it's like to be a woman uh, in that culture or society. I think it, it it needs to be quite diverse and it needs to be
0: just more. Definitely, I couldn't agree more. And I I also find it really interesting because I've been looking back as well for for a book I've been writing for the longest time, but I'm really far from finishing because I've only recently discovered that I love writing with all my heart. But um, how did this work? Were all these stories shared with you often by your family? Was Or is it just the letters that led you into this journey of looking deeper into the right. past? Right.
1: And I'd love to also hear more about your project. And I love hearing about your history and your family as well. But I think hmm, for me I, I grew up with many of these stories told to me uh, they're almost like bedtime stories that I've had every night since I was a really small girl. The, my mother's mother's story about June and Lee and their uh, tragic uh, Circumstance in both of their tragic deaths, I—that uh, story is something I—I—I I, I, I knew word for word, and it was about um, doing the research to understand the places and the details, and also get back to the emotional truths of every person in that story in order to bring it out in the memoir. Um, for for. Kumiko's story, my grandmother, so my father's mother, that that was the same. It was a lot of research. I, I had known about the events, but it was understanding what I know intersecting with different history, where that history is told, depending on which country tells it, uh, anything that has to do with war, anything that has to do with um, destruction and massacre, and especially hatred, you know. That stuff it needs so much um, reading and understanding to get to a place where that can sort of take up the page.
0: Wow. And also, it's the kind of things that you must read and must touch you so deeply because you see all the layers that you might have not understood before, right?
1: Right. Right.
0: There is this quote that really called my attention and I wanted to see if you share its truth with your mother or not. If you have no suffering, you have no story to tell. Is that true? <laughs> and you write it that way. <laughs> so, what do you think? Is that the case?
1: Mm, that's interesting. I I think my mother says that to try and say in, in few words that there will be, come a time when we can look back at all this and everything will be okay because we have stories and at first that that bothered me which is why it's in the first chapter because my initial impression is that that doesn't matter I I want to be with my family Um, but I think as I become a writer and I learn poetry toward the end of that whole journey, I realized, oh, there's quite a bit of truth to what she said because my work right now is in trauma and understanding trauma uh, within a family, understanding intergenerational trauma, but also historical collective trauma. And what, what I've seen is so evident that it gets handed down and that trauma grows exponentially, um, sort of depending on whether that trauma can be dealt with or not. but it's it's very new research, but I we're also coming across enough information that tells us there are ways to heal that trauma, and there are ways to maybe not stop it from happening, but there are ways we can approach trauma that's in our bodies that will change that trauma in our bodies and so that any forthcoming generations don't have to have that same experience and i mean it's it might be too specific but it's the expression of our dna so it's how that expression happens that gets affected by trauma
0: I think that research that you're talking about is extraordinary because we physically carry trauma. Right,
1: right, right. We we physically carry it, and it it affects our health. You know, we're we're much more likely to have disease, to have uh, certain difficulties, uh, like cancer, heart disease, and so on. Much more likely to have issues with. Uh, Behavioral issues with development, learning development, which were things that uh, we just didn't know back then, and it would have helped if if my parents had that information. And it and it's going to help now that we we don't have to always assume that if we have children with ADHD that that's that's specifically just because they can't focus, and it might have to do with having uh, adverse childhood experiences, which. Uh, This wonderful doctor, her name's Dr. Nadine Burke Harris, she talks about that quite a bit, but I think a part of that research tells us that storytelling, using words, uh, using a quiet time and exercise and maintaining health, physical health, these things do have an effect and can change the trajectory of our lives that have been um, affected by trauma.
0: When you were going through this period of your life when you were feeling really alone, and as you were saying, you were doing substance abuse, anorexia was a constant in your life, and all these things, how were you able to step away from that?
1: Um, That's interesting.
0: Because that's a big step, especially when you're on your own.
1: Right. I, I don't know if I ever stepped away from that while I was there. I think from the outside, it looks like I might have been getting better when I found a way to dance or I uh, went to college. But I think I took these sort of bad habits I formed when I was young and I just switched them over to different things. So what started as bulimia... Uh, um. Changed into anorexia, and then I stopped because because of dance. But that didn't mean that the sort of psychological um, damage wasn't still there. So it resurfaced as um, these these really terrible panic attacks and a bit of hallucination during my uh, young adult years. So it was always beneath the surface, and I don't think it. I mean, even as I was writing poetry in in New York, you you see glimpses of that come back where I'm struggling to understand why I have to live, why I why somebody um, doesn't have a choice not to live. You know, those are questions I ask, even with poetry uh, behind me. And uh, I don't think it's even when I reunite with my mother, I have issues. come up but I think towards the end what I realize is that whether I'm alive um, or not I'm still life Um, you you can uh, I mean to say it another way you can be living or not living but you can never not be life and that all of it even the good I mean even the bad all of it is a part of of life And I don't know, yeah, I don't know if at the end of the book I understand that perfectly, but I think I'm coming across that notion. I'm just beginning to.
0: And at the same time, I think that like spirituality has a big role when it comes to this and also your understanding of the afterlife. I was surprised to see you make a reference to the the table settings. And how there's rice bowls on the left, soup bowls on the right. If we set the table oppositely, as we did for ancestral rites, then ghosts would debor- devour our dinners. We tried not to disturb or refuse the death. This seems this is so close to our tradition in Mexico from day the, of the death. It 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 I was impressed by how similar it was. So I want to understand what is your understanding of death?
1: Right. So what we usually do, it's called, um, it's their ancestral rites that we do every year on the day of a loved one's death. And we do a table that we set up and we have offerings on the table with some of their favorite foods and um, sort of the the usual things that you're going to have some fish and fruit and we have their photo on the table. And it's important part of sort of Korean tradition to do that every year um, in order to honor and remember and invite um, that person back and give, give thanks. So the idea of the table setting, I mean, the, the idea is that when you're not of the living, you eat a certain way, your, setting, your table setting is different. But when you're a part of the living, your your table setting is the opposite way. And so um, there are little things to know. Uh, Like when I was young, my mother would be furious if I sort of left my spoon or chopsticks inside the bowl or I sort of stuck them in the rice or I I didn't set it off the table because those things are invitations, for, for other souls to come in and have their fill, they're more they become offerings, and same with where you put your soup and where you put your rice. Um, if you set it the other way, that becomes an invitation. So it's it, some of that is interesting because the way the way I was raised, it was a keen understanding of when you open that door and when it's closed, um, when it's uh, important and when you might be doing something you don't intend to do that's that's um much that can be very dishonorable so it's just a little bit about that
0: and what about so in a way what you're explaining is almost like a mirror image you know so it, it would that's the way that a mirror would look do you have other rituals or understandings about mirrors i'm very curious about mirrors that's I ask. <laughs>
1: Right. And, and by the way, the year that that yearly ritual is called Chesha and we do it. It. Yeah, we, we do it for all our family members and it's passed down to the eldest son in the generation to to lead the Chesha and make sure everything's uh, all the family is together for that. Um yeah, you know, mirrors are a really powerful theme. I, When you ask about mirrors, what I think about is contemporary women's poetry. I see mirrors a lot. Um, Ewan is a Korean poet that I'm translating. And she uses a lot of mirrors in her poem. And the mirrors are helpful when... When you're trying to face yourself and see um, who you are versus well, what polite society and what the expectations of society makes you out to be, so mirror, mirrors seem to be something I see more in contemporary um, women poetry. But but I'm sure I'm, I'm sure there's more references to that. I, I I'll have to yeah. keep you posted. Yeah.
0: How interesting. And I think that very often throughout the book, you you reference different rituals, like washing yourself with ginseng or bathing yourself. What is that about? Right. So that's I think it
1: can can be ceremonious or like a ritual, but it's it, it really is just a common body wash. It's a common scent and a common solution for body wash and bathing when you go into these uh, they're called ginger bangs but they're they're big sort of bath houses and they have different rooms of different temperatures like clay rooms and really really hot rooms but they have ice rooms and then they have um, um, everyone is separated by gender to go into these baths and those baths have different pools with different temperatures and so the the body the ginseng body wash is really something that I I located because I'm visiting Korea as a foreigner as a stranger and that's just a scent that I would pick up quite often and I think that comes up in the book is it's it's a way for me to um, connect with that place to bring that back
0: yes I I, I did that a similar experience I guess in Japan uh, at the end of last year. And I think that it's so beautiful, that ceremony of bathing together when all your layers are out, when of absolute vulnerability. Yeah. We do not have anything similar in Mexico unless you place it from the Jewish religion perspective. Exactly. So, and yet this must carry so much meaning looking further back. Right. But at the same time, I realized that there is this idealization of the American women When you go uh, to the mall with your mother and you say, well, uh, the woman that is helping you out says, she'll grow up to have a glamorous figure, like an American. Right. So what is that self-perception of what it means to be a Korean woman versus what it is to be an American woman?
1: Right. I think what's really interesting about that comment, and it was something I, I got quite a bit. And so I think there's a few different meanings behind it based on how they they said it to me. But I think sometimes it's a reference to um, when I went to Korea, Korea oftentimes they just have one size. They don't have sort of small, medium, large, or, or extra large, and, and all the really important sizes that... Um, that that helped you feel comfortable I think so when I would go I would try clothes on and it wouldn't fit because it was one size and it was a very small size and so sometimes saying you're glamorous was a very I think kinder way of saying that you're just a little larger than what we're used to seeing here which is I, I think reflective of of the expectation is that if you're a Korean woman growing up in Korea, you have to be idealistically small. You have to be so um, thin and you have to maintain that um, to the point that there's one size. Uh, there are uh, other sizes, but not every place had that. So and then I think another part of it was Sometimes I'll hear that and it, it'll be a different kind of idealization of what an American woman would be. And that that's opposing. But I don't think it's any better. It's that you have to be curvaceous. You have to have a very um, hourglass figure. You have to fill out your clothes. Um, and to be honest, I don't think either either culture really has. Um, any good intention with with what, what that ideal figure has to be for them. I think it's damaging both ways, but I, I think it, it's interesting. I, I just thought that was a really common comment I would get. And I wanted to include it into the book to give you a sense of what
0: it might be like to be commented on in that way. It's interesting because I actually thought of it completely different. And obviously this is culture speaking and your own perception. So, but but it's true. I mean, Latin America, if you don't have a good pair of breasts, you're no one. You know, <laughs> I grew up also with that kind of notion where everywhere I looked, women were just like this. And I was like, well, then, <laughs> you know, So I thought that all I needed in life was a good pair of breasts and life would be okay. And they truly sort of share that notion with you. And I think it's so, I mean, it's so ridiculous. <laughs> But you can only see that in time and in perspective of being in other places. If I was still in Mexico, that would still be part of my value to a certain yeah. degree. Yeah. And I met um, my husband is French, and so he was like, "I don't like breasts." <laughs> <laughs> I was like, "Okay, this is it," you know. So that's wonderful. It's that kind of thing where <laughs> you just need to find your your space. I think so much has to do with the place where we are you know right right that changes everything yeah. and then i want to finish the conversation with this phrase that was very very special your mom tells you uh the magical well live a more fulfilling life too mommy wants to work your dad wants to rest mommy wants to work work to make money work that contributes to the world world that work that helps others Work which gives a vivid feeling that everything is alive. I'm saying that mommy also wants to show you that she's capable, able. Mommy wants to show you herself and show your dad and you guys. This is such a turning point in the story in the end because this is where you can see your mother as this vulnerable being that just hasn't found a way. So my question is, by the time you finished your memoir, did you forgive her?
1: Yes, I, th- I think so. I think I forgave my mother by giving her space and by letting her go. I think at the end of the book, when I say I let her go and that it was the first time, that came from a very sincere place that even if she lived very far from me i I was suffocating her I was suffocating my idea of her and my expectations of what she should be as a mother to me and it wasn't until the end I that I was able to let that go and and let her go and, and love her as she is and not who I need her to be, not who. I need her to be for me to feel loved. I can love her and and also love her as who she is and feel loved even if she might not be able to give the love I crave. Uh, it, it's about my understanding. And so that was really important. Now, I and I think it might be different. I suspect it's different for everybody, but Forgiveness isn't always just a one-time thing. It's it's something that might be a daily ritual. It might be something to work on every day. It might be something to revisit every year. But I think it's it's how much more can I forgive? uh, I don't think it's have I forgiven this person. It's, It's how much more can I forgive them than I already have? and by that you're you're letting them go and also giving yourself some grace. You're working on yourself by doing that.
0: Wow. Your your wording really <laughs> I I'm, I'm taking notes because it's 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 so special the way you say it. I think if we were to understand forgiveness as a ritual, we would be able to be so much more forgiving towards ourselves because it always comes back in the strangest of ways, in the simplest of images. You know, I I, I see my inner five-year-old come out by the strangest triggers where I'm like, how did this happen? And and there are things that no one will ever understand about that. It's only when you leave it and when you're able to to be more compassionate towards you. But something that I think is also... um, really important for you to note through all this process is that um, the level of spiritual backup that you've had through the mentors that you've found along the way has been incredible. The stories that you're telling me in my own spiritual understanding and my personal history, those are angels and those are your ancestors showing themselves in order to lead your way. So it's really important to, to acknowledge them that way if you set the table, if you still were to follow that tradition <laughs> and to honor their coming back for a bit to to see how you are.
1: <laughs> Thank you. So. I, I agree. I think it's very true. I'm, I'm very fortunate and I have definitely been able to write the book not because I was alone, but because I'm not alone, and I had a lot of help um, writing it, so thank you.
0: And how has your poetry transformed, now that all this information has been sort of purged? It must be different to a certain degree.
1: Yeah, Um, it's really interesting. No, I think it's, it's different from... My first poetry book, I believe, was published in 2017. And then the memoir came out this year in 2020. And so since then, I've I've been writing other poems. And I think, I think, uh, I don't know how they're changing. I, I know that they're different. And I know that I'm going into different ideas and territories. It almost feels like I I wrote quite a bit about my mother and I don't necessarily have to Keep writing about her. Maybe there's a lot that was resolved, but maybe there—I'll be writing about my mother for the rest of my life. Who who knows?
0: <laughs> so, it will always be a part of you. So yeah, yeah. But thank you so so much, EJ. This thank was you, a wonderful Danielle. conversation. Um, unmissable. The language of <laughs> others. <laughs> the magical language of others.
1: Thank you so much, Danie, for your really wonderful questions. It really helped me go into places I wasn't really thinking about and helped me learn more about the book and also about myself and you. So thank you for bridging the gap between us. And hopefully a lot of people can, can enjoy this conversation. Thank you. Music production and audio editing by Nori Ehrenfeld.